Hello, everyone. My name is Jason Stewart. Welcome inside the hub for another conversation. We've got a great book tour episode today um, as we talk to Dr. Michael Gillen. Um, and I know you're going to be fascinated with this conversation and just to learn from Dr. Gillen's story. Um, and as we unpack a new book that he just released this week through NAP Press called Believing is Seeing. So let me tell you about uh, Dr. Gillen a little bit, and then we'll bring him into the conversation. Uh, Michael Gillen is a graduate of UCLA, PhD from Cornell University and holds degrees in physics, math, and astronomy. So I'm gonna I'm gonna have to hold on and try to keep up with Dr. Gillen today. I'm an East Tennessee boy, and I'm just I'm just <laughs> glad to make it through high school kind of stuff. So, Dr. Gillen, you're really gonna test me today. So this is gonna be fun. But uh, Dr. Gillen's had several significant influential roles. Um, they include a science editor, the former science editor for ABC News. Uh, physics instructor at Harvard for eight years, also hosted the History Channel series, Where Did It Come From?, and also produced the award-winning family movie called Little Red Wagon, currently on Amazon Prime, so you'll definitely want to check those out. And today, Dr. Gellin continues his work as an author. Obviously, we'll be talking about one of uh, one of his books that just released this week. Um, he's also the host of a weekly podcast that you'll want to look up called Science Plus God with Dr. G. And he also has a film and television production company um, and continues to do speaking engagements on college campuses worldwide. So um, we're privileged to have Dr. Gillen with us today. And um, we're gonna, as I said, we're going to be looking at his new book, Believing is Seeing. And here's the question we really want to wrestle with in this conversation as we invite Dr. Gillen in, is your worldview, is my worldview, is our worldview as church leaders, um, is it enlightened enough to accommodate both science and God at the same time. So that's kind of the big question that I'm excited to talk to Doc, Dr. Gillen about. So Dr. Gillen, welcome. Um, where are you at right now? Where in the world are you as we connect here inside our uh, Exponential Hub? Well, right this very minute, I'm, I'm at our ranch in North Texas, just north of Dallas. It's, we call it Rancho Milagro, which is Spanish for Miracle Ranch for all kinds of reasons. The way we came to this place is, uh, was quite a miracle. Um, so, um, for a change, I, I get to talk to you from home. Usually I'm traveling around an awful lot, but I'm just thrilled to be with you and all the folks who are joining us in the webinar. You mentioned East uh, Tennessee. Uh, we lived, my family and I lived in Nashville for about three or four years and really, really enjoyed ourselves just before moving here to North Texas. Uh, um, just really thrilled to be here with you this morning, Jason. Oh, that's great, <clears throat> Dr. Gillen. So I'm in Nashville now. I'm just south of Nashville. So everybody uh, watching us right now is going to have to just follow along with us for a minute. So where in Nashville did you live before you moved to North Texas? We're, we're right on the uh, line between Franklin and Nashville. So okay. we, we were about uh, 12 minutes from downtown Nashville. We had acreage because we have farm animals. Okay. And so we were uh, close to Fairview and to, uh, to uh, 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 the, Nashville, the Nashville line. This I is know it. People said it's the last, last stop right on Highway 100, about three yep. miles south of the Loveless Cafe. And I miss the I, Loveless Cafe. Miss those biscuits, brother. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I wish you were still here. We could have met up at Loveless and had some, uh, oh. some biscuits and peaches. You know, that, that stuff's great. Um, yeah, I had a, uh, my uh, my son's girlfriend is from Nashville and 
they were visiting us here just a couple of weeks ago and she brought me back a jar of that pe- the peach preserves from the loveless cafe so yeah i can't wait to have that there you go fun. well and then so my last little thing for all everyone watching this will be my last nashville comment and all this <laughs> but dr Elon, when you come back to nashville you'll need to go to jenny's ice cream because they have ice cream that's uh biscuit and peaches from loveless cafe and ice cream is pretty amazing so okay now that you've got me suitably uh hungry let's get on with the conversation (laughs) (laughs) thank you for that yeah thanks for having some fun with me for a second but we're, we're honored to have you um in this conversation um and you know, in our world today, you know, our our audience is church leaders. Um, we're grateful to steward a community of uh, what we call church multiplication activists um, that we really have a heart as um, an exponential community to see not just the church uh, have an impact and, and reproduce and multiply itself so that we would see the gospel um, as a movement taken in all the nooks and crannies of society. And society is a, in our culture is a challenge today in many ways. There's a lot of things pressing in um, on the church and our faith and especially church leaders. Um, and so the conversation around science and faith is is no more important than it is today. So grateful and we're honored to have you uh, with us. So if if I could just go ahead and dive in on um, just talking about the release of Believing is Seeing, your new book this week. It came out yesterday. I saw on paperback, so excited about that. And we'll talk more and then in hard copy in a couple of weeks. But, you know, really just to kind of um, get in your heart and mind about writing this book is you talk about how this was fueled by curiosity. So I so if we could just start there, just kind of on a personal note for you as an author and as a scientist and as a man of faith of how has curiosity sh- you know, shaped your life? I can remember back in middle school, Jason, um, my math teacher was just constantly angry with me because I would raise my question, my hand all the time and interrupt his lectures with questions. Of course, for me as a kid, <clears throat> I was probably in, you know, seventh grade. Uh, it was just a natural thing for me to do is to ask questions. That's how you learn. Uh, but he was so upset with me, he started calling me Michael Jillian instead of Michael Gillen because I asked a Jillian questions. <laughs> Fortunately, I was not intimidated. And many years later on, when I found myself teaching at Cornell and then at Harvard, Um, I made it a point to tell the kids on the very first day of school that there was no such thing as a dumb question and that I invited them to interrupt me with questions. In fact, I went so far as to say to the kids, I'm going to grade you on quizzes and homework, but I'm also going to grade you on the questions you ask and the tougher, the better. And now as I go around talking to kids on campuses, uh, I I say the very same thing during the Q&A session. I say to them, look, just bring it on. Um, and what I find is that kids out there today, Jason, are just like me, uh, just the way I was many years ago. The world has changed an awful lot, yes, but people are still curious about the same fundamental questions. And these kids that I talk to on campuses and in churches all over the place, um, they, they, they look at me as someone... <clears throat> who is giving them permission to vent their curiosity. I remember being at a university. I won't mention the name uh, of the university, but it was actually in the Nashville area. 
And um, afterwards, after, after the program was all done, the, the pastor who had been moderating the conversation, who had introduced the whole event, uh, said to the kids, almost rhetorically now, what, what do you think about that? Do you think you would have felt uh, comfortable asking those questions of your, of your pastor? And the, the feeling was unanimous in the room. The kids were very, very animated. They said, oh, no, no way. And that kind of broke my heart because it gave me an insight. And I've seen this kind of reaction. And it's very apropos of our conversation this morning, I think, that I think a lot of kids uh, who do attend church, never mind the ones who don't, um, they just don't feel like their pastor is either willing or able or open uh, to being asked questions about the universe. Um, they, there's a sense that science is not welcome in the church. And so they refrain from asking the questions. And if they do ask the questions, they get brushed off. Um, so anyway, um, curiosity for me has meant everything. Uh, I had the very great privilege when I was living in Nashville, and I mean great privilege, of meeting uh, Rice Brooks, Dr. Rice Brooks, mm -hmm. uh, who is, you probably know, the author of God's Not Dead. And I was at actually, and I'll confess this to you, I was actually at a low point in my life at that. Uh, I felt as if making the move from Los Angeles, we moved, we, we had a beautiful property in Los Angeles. I felt God calling me to Nashville, my family and I. So we packed up the dog and the kid and we drove and moved to Nashville. And uh, my feeling at that point, Jason, was that um, there was no role for me in the church. I, I just felt as if the church was kind of deaf, dumb and blind to what was going on, uh, that we, we're not losing a generation. We have lost a generation. And when you look at Barna studies and other studies and you, and you query these kids, why aren't you going to church? Why, why have you left the faith? Very oftentimes they mention science as the reason um, that uh, they, they feel as if the Bible is in conflict with science uh, and there's no one at the church to disabuse them of that terribly misguided point of view. And I remember Dr. Brooks just taking me kind of by the lapels and saying, brother, there is a fight going on right now for this generation, and you need to be in the thick of it because you've got a unique voice, and the church just doesn't know who you are. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I, I grew up doing national television, and I was, grew up in the secular world. Uh, and, and so he said, um, you, you need to be in this fight. And he prayed over me, and over months, uh, he really finally got through to me, and I, it made me feel as if, yeah, I'm, the Lord isn't done with me yet. Mm -hmm. And as we went around talking on campuses together, and I love my brother, Dr. Brooks, um, he, I remember, I think we were at Michigan State University one morning, and typically we would walk the morning of the event together, just pray over the campus, talk, uh, just have coffee together, just gather our thoughts and pray over the event of that night. And uh, he said to me, you know, I've been listening to what you're saying to the kids about faith. And he says, and I've never heard anybody talk about faith the way you do. Uh, you have a unique insight into this uh, most important subject. I mean, faith is at the center of our, of Christianity. Mm -hmm. He said, you really ought to write a book about it. I said, all oh, right, you know, I, I've got a lot of things going on and I, you know, I, that I really had zero interest in it. 
um, he kept pestering me. And, <laughs> and then my wife ganged up on me. Then, you know, then my wife came alongside Rice and he, and then my agent came along, who's also in Nashville. He's a great agent there in Nashville. Uh, Wes Yoder, he's been my agent for a number of years. And um, they all ganged up on me. And finally, well, I, I, you know, just to get them off my back, I said, all right, all right, I'll, I'll write the book. And my heart was not in it. And actually, I aborted the book about two months into it. I, I just didn't feel like I was saying what I needed to say. It just was going in the wrong direction. So I shelved it. I shelved it, brother. And mm -hmm. um, then one day, I think it was a major holiday. Maybe it was even Christmas. I just, something spoke to me. I think it was the Lord and said, no, no, you got to revisit that problem. You can't just drop it. And I did. And then it just came pouring out of me. And so the book that came out yesterday is the result of years of my putting um, my thoughts and journey into it uh, in the hopes that it will be of uh, help to pastors as they try to reach out to young people. I, I had the book in mind as a, a possible uh, study guide. Um, it could make a great study guide where I think it's, I don't know, eight or nine, 10 chapters. Uh, take a chapter a Sunday or take, you know, uh, spread it out even a longer length. And I think it's just a way to reach out to these young people because it's all about curiosity. It's all about asking questions like, how did our universe come to be? What's the meaning of life? Why are you on earth? Um, why was the Bible written? What is it trying to communicate to us? What is faith? Faith is more than just, well, I believe. No, no, no. It's more than that. It's like saying love is just joy. No, joy is an expression of love. So believing is an expression of faith. But what is faith itself? What is this thing that we uh, speak so glibly about? And I find that when you ask Christians, even your average well-informed Christian, they can't really answer it. They say, well, you know, it's just, you know, it's just a question of believing. No, it's not. It's more than that. We are wired to be creatures of faith. So in this book, I go through the science, the neuroscience, the physics, astronomy, math. I, I explain how all these things ultimately depend on faith. Even my beloved physics, math, and astronomy, we depend on faith. The entire human experience depends on faith. So anyway, uh, that is a fairly long-winded way of explaining to you that I am by nature and by training a person who asks questions. I'm curious. Mm -hmm. And I demand honest answers. And this book is a kind of memorialization of some of the things I've discovered along the way. Wow. Uh, well, I get to ask questions on this kind of going forward. I've got a lot of questions now, just hearing your reflections of the book and your journey and how curiosity. Um, so I'm very curious about several things. So I've got a few questions. I just want to kind of um, touch on several of the things you just mentioned. And so, you know, at the open, we we kind of framed up our conversation today and how your book, Believing is Seeing, helps us as church leaders or pastors is this idea, is our worldview enlightened enough to accommodate both science and God at the same time? And, you know, so, you know, as a pastor, as a student pastor for years, and this, you know, we always wrestled with this this word, this concept, worldview. So I'm really curious now to talk to you as a lifelong scientist, um, you know, um, as a professor in a lot of these scientific disciplines. How how do you define 
worldview? And then if you could add to that, does everyone have a worldview in your mind as you look at it from a scientific point? I'll give you an A for that question, Jason. Okay. <laughs> That's a great question. And it really cuts to the heart of what I talk about in the book. Yes, worldview by definition is how you view the world. Um, it's as simple and as uh, profound as that. Um, I'll go even further. Your worldview defines you. You see, Jason is Jason's worldview and Jason's worldview is Jason. Gillen's worldview is Gillen, and Gillen is Gillen's worldview. Uh, there is no distinction uh, between you and your worldview. So your worldview dictates how you see the world, and that in turn dictates what you think about the world, how you react to the world. I, I posted this morning on my social media platforms um, a uh, picture of a young woman in despair. And, I, and, I, and the headline was living in fear and despair question. Don't blame the world. Blame your worldview. You see, the world is a wicked world. It, and it hasn't changed since Old Testament times. You know, we read today's headlines and we go, oh, my God. Oh, the world. Well, the world is <laughs> the world has always been in trouble right from the first day in the Garden of Eden, right? When, when Adam and Eve made that fateful decision to rebel against God. And we've just been rebelling against God ever since then. So the question is that, do you surrender yourself to the turmoil of the world or not? And that decision is determined by your worldview. That's why I say, don't blame the world for your fear and your despair. Blame your worldview. Um, it is your most important possession. I don't know what kind of car you drive, Jason, or the, the kind folks or uh, the pastors who are listening in. I don't care if you drive a, a, a Maserati and you live in a 5,000 square foot house. I don't care if you wear designer clothes. Your most important possession in life is your worldview. And when time, when you encounter trouble in times of crisis, what I call titanic moments, and we can talk about that later on, and mm -hmm. your worldview will either become your best friend or your worst enemy. It will either sink your ship or it will cause you to soar like an eagle. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about, a specific example. Uh, Dr. Brooks and I were talking, I believe it, with the University of Kentucky. And at the end of the event, uh, during the Q&A session, a little gal uh, towards the back of the left-hand side of the auditorium, it was a big auditorium, stood up. And I thought she was going to ask a question. But she looked at her iPhone. She says, uh, Dr. Gillen, we're, a lot of us are getting a text right now that a student here has committed suicide in his dorm room. Mm -hmm. and, as, and you can imagine the whole theater just fell silent and we prayed over that student. I didn't know who he was, but uh, the following morning, I looked, at, I looked through the news and I saw the headline, the story coming out of there. And it was indeed a student who committed suicide. Now, here's why I'm telling you this story. Who killed him? I always say, well, it's suicide. He killed himself. No, he didn't. His worldview killed him. Because I don't know what was troubling that young man. But it was clearly a situation where his worldview was telling him that there's no hope for you. There's no way out except to shoot yourself or to kill yourself. So 
that was really death by worldview. That's how important your worldview can become. That if you have a worldview that is dysfunctional, that's based on mis- what I call in the book misguided faith, and I and I just I define what I mean by misguided faith and enlightened faith, because not all faith is created equal. You can say, well, I have a faith-based worldview. I don't care. Everyone has a faith-based worldview. You're not telling me anything I don't know. What I want to know is, is your faith misguided or is it enlightened? And I explain the difference. It's a huge difference in the book. So this, this young man clearly had a dysfunctional worldview based on very misguided faith. And he put his faith in that worldview and that worldview killed him. And I have other stories I tell in the book like that. So Mm -hmm. in answer to your question, that's what a worldview is. And that's how important a worldview is. So in the book, I challenge the reader to take a good hard look at their worldviews and ask themselves, is my worldview based on misguided faith or enlightened faith? And then there are two other questions you have to ask yourself about your worldview. And that is number one, what's its size? If you think of your worldview as a kind of a sphere, that's your bubble of reality. It's your reality. It's the world you live in. It's because that's how you see the world, okay? And you have to ask yourself, how big is my worldview? And in particular, you have to ask yourself, is it big enough to accommodate the creator of the universe as well as the study of the universe, i.e. science. When I was much younger, I had a small worldview, and we can get into that if you want. The third question you have to ask yourself um, about your worldview is this. What's at the center of your worldview? You see? Um, Years ago, when I was an atheist, um, I was at the center of my worldview, all right? Today, God is at the world is at the center of my worldview. Jesus himself is at the world center of my worldview. So bottom line, everyone has a worldview. It is your most important possession. It has these three features, foundation, size, and center. And it can either work for you or work against you. And even atheists who have this kind of conceit, and I had it too, so I'm not upset with them. I, I actually empathize with them. They're, they they have worldviews, I believe, that are based very much on misguided faith, but even their worldview is based on faith. Why? Because each and every one of our worldviews ultimately is based on what I call axiomatic beliefs, things we believe about the world. That's what determines how we see the world, these axiomatic beliefs. And these axiomatic beliefs cannot be proven. You have to take them on faith. So in the case of an atheist, one of their axiomatic beliefs is the universe is a natural accident. It's a spectacular accident, but it's an accident. Well, that's not, that's not a belief they can ever prove. Science can never prove it. Uh, and so they have to take that on faith. So you can go on and on and on, whether you're Muslim or Hindu or Christian or Jewish, whatever, your worldview, whether you know it or not, whether you're willing to admit it or not, is based on faith. The only question is, is it misguided faith or enlightened faith? Uh, Dr. Gillen, that's really helpful because um, if, I, if I can unpack what I hear you saying is, we, yeah, I, knowing that we all have a worldview, but hearing it from your perspective of 
um, science and how I love the expression of how our worldviews are our most pres- precious possession and um, and how that how even in your journey as an atheist becoming a, a Christ follower and a scientist all throughout that, that faith for we know as people, you know, we would say we are people of faith. So we know faith is at the center, but that for a scientist who is an atheist, they also have a, a faith in what they are doing. It's just a different um, place where they're putting their faith. Yes. And so I think, um, and some things that have been helpful as I'm connecting some dots, just in kind of recent biblical scholarship, if you will, along with what you're saying from a scientific point of view, the, that we can see the word faith is not is not only just a set of beliefs or principles, but faith really, there's a deeper level where faith is this idea, the Greek word pistis, which if I understand it right, is this idea of allegiance, that we give allegiance to things. And so just hearing how you're unpacking worldview and faith, that whether we put our faith in Jesus, like you said, we're putting in yourself and our listeners, putting Jesus at the center of our faith versus other things, either way, we're giving allegiance of our life towards something. And so I'm really curious, just in your journey, just the background, your scientific background, and all the places of influence and opportunity you've been in, how, how can you just tell a little more how your world, you've kind of alluded to it, so I'd like to just hear a little more of how your worldview has changed coming from a place of um, science and physics and astronomy and math and all the background that you have, um, how that worldview has shaped and changed over the years to what it is today. When I was in the second grade, I was born in East LA um, in the Mexican barrio. I'm five-eighths Mexican, two-eighths Spanish, Cuban, and one-eighth Austrian. It's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) And as a child, uh, I have clear memories of being a seven-year-old in the second grade, um, just falling head over heels in love with science. It was interesting because my father and both my grandfathers were Spanish-speaking Pentecostal ministers. And so everyone assumed that I would go into the ministry. And we would attend church maybe about seven days a week. And, you know, my the sermons we were required to listen to were long. It's not like these 20-minute affairs today, you know, you know, look at the whole service lasts an hour. Well, in those days, the sermons la- alone lasted two hours. <laughs> and then it wasn't just even one service a day. It was oftentimes two and three. Um, and, and woe to us if we didn't sit still in the pew and listen because my mom would reach over and pinch us. Uh, so that was the world I grew up in, very strict Pentecostal, and I never owned that faith. I never understood it as a child, you can imagine. And I think, again, that's a mistake that pastors and uh, parents make, that uh, they think that just by taking their kids to, to church every Sunday, somehow um, that's going to sink in, and uh, uh, and maybe it does, and maybe it doesn't. In my case, it, it, um, it went in or out the other. And so when I left Los Angeles to go to Cornell to train myself as a physicist, um, my intention was to become an experimental high energy physicist, but then I ended up getting a PhD in physics, math, and astronomy. There's a whole story on that, and I explain it in the book. Look, I... I, I never look, I never set out to be a rebel or a maverick or a, a troublemaker, but 
I, 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 I'm, I'm just a nonconformist, and um, the, the Lord just wired me like that. And even now, being a scientist and a Christian, you know, people will look at me, the kids, when I go to university, they don't know, I'm like a Martian to them. It's like, you're a scientist and you're a Christian too? I had one kid come up to me afterwards, and he said to me, I think he was Muslim, and he very earnest. He said, Dr. Gillen, I have just a question for you. He says, do you believe in the whole Bible? And, I, and he was just, a, he, he, was, he was asking it with incredulity. And I looked at him, I said, well, let me put it to you this way. Yes, I said, there is nothing in the Bible that I have ever read, and I've read it cover to cover more than once. I said, there's nothing in the Bible that I've ever read that conflicts with what I've learned as a scientist. And I don't see anything on the scientific horizon that is threatening the Bible. And that's just the God's honest truth. And so he was, he was so thrilled. I don't know if he was thrilled. I think he was just, he, it, made, it made him think. But anyway, getting back to what you're uh, asking me is, um, so when I left uh, Los Angeles and went to Cornell uh, to study as a grad student, I felt liberated. I, I felt like this was my first opportunity to be who I really was, which was someone who was uh, in love with science. Nothing else mattered to me. Certainly God. God was, forget it. I mean, not even on my radar. I, I can't even begin to explain to you how irrelevant God was to me in those years. I had no social life either, Jason. I had no, no I barely ate. I barely slept. I slept about three hours a, a day from about three in the morning to six in the morning. Typically, I had this world's smallest dorm room, but I didn't care because the other 21 hours I was either in my basement lab at the lab of nuclear studies, uh, had no windows. So I didn't know if it was day or night or it was Monday or Sunday or Tuesday. It didn't matter to me. Um, I barely groomed myself. I was really an unkempt uber geek. And uh, there's no other way to put it. I describe myself as a scientific monk because really I was sequestered away in my lab most of the time. And all I cared about was science. I, even in the three little hours that I slept, I dreamt about science. <laughs> so anyway, um, I, uh, I think it was about the second year of my grad studies. I, I began asking a question because I had learned two stunning things about the universe. Number one, uh, I, I learned that the universe was mostly invisible. And we now estimate that about 95% of the observable universe is invisible, which I know sounds like a contradiction in term. If you read the book, you'll understand what I mean, that the 95% of the observable universe is invisible. There's even a part of the universe that's unobservable, and that's really invisible to us, always will be. Uh, and, and again, I explained it in the book. And then the second stunning thing I, I learned as a grad student is that um, the universe appears to be designed for life. And again, I explain this in the book. We don't have time this morning to get into all of this, but it's all in the book. And um, so I began asking myself, being a curious person, right? A uh, guy who asks questions, that's my trademark. How did this mostly invisible universe that is designed for life come to be. And I knew science offered me an, uh, an explanation in the form of the standard cosmological model. That was before inflation. We now have added inflation and all the rest of it. And again, I talk about that in the book. But there, that, that uh, model, the standard cosmological model has lots of problems. It's riddled with problems, some big and some small. 
And I knew that. And even though I was in love with the, uh, with the mathematics, the mathematics of the cosmological st standard cosmological model, it, it, uh, the, the mathematics is just beautiful, uh, like works of art to me. But I was not satisfied. Remember, I'm a guy ultimately who asks questions and demands honest answers. And I didn't feel as if science was fully answering my question. So I launched on this, what I call Herman Hess-like journey. You know, have you ever heard, read Herman Hess? He's a Nobel Prize winning German uh, novelist whose, whose protagonists tend to be these tormented intellectuals who go off on these spiritual journeys trying, trying to find answers to life's deep questions. Well, I, I became one of Herman Hess's protagonists. I was a tormented intellectual trying to find an answer to my question. And so I started exploring Hinduism and then Buddhism and then Confucianism and then Judaism and Islam and transcendental meditation and on and on and on. And then one day, and I can't, we don't have time to get into this whole story, but it's in the book. It's something like you can't even make up. Uh, young co-ed uh, at Cornell um, entered my life in the most unexpected way, challenged me to read the Bible. I did it grudgingly, um, ended up taking us two years to read it together. And that for me ended up being a game changer. And in particular, it was because of the way Jesus spoke. The Old Testament didn't impress me. But the New Testament, in particular, Jesus impressed me. And again, I explain it in the book. I didn't drop to my knees. I didn't have a Damascus-like experience. I'm not that kind of guy. I'm very hard-headed. Again, had a, just spawned millions more questions in my mind. But I was hooked enough that for about the next 20 years, I kept exploring Christianity mm -hmm. more and more. But it took me about 20 years to drop the other shoe. Finally, it was in the 1990s. And again, I tell the whole story in the book, and uh, I, I reached a point where I said, you know what, if I want to continue thinking of myself as an intellectual, as an honest intellectual, um, I've got I've to drop the other shoe and just uh, embrace Christianity. And that's what I did. So ever since then, I lived quite comfortably as both a scientist and as a Christian. And I'm not a duffer. I mean, I, I'm not, you know pardon the expression, just go to Sunday uh, service Christian, you know, like a weekend golf, golfing duffer. I mean, I, I live and breathe my faith every second of every day. It means everything to me now. And it's rock solid because it is the result of my asking tough questions and demanding honest answers, not because somebody spoon fed me a sermon or somebody said this or that I ought to do that. No. And this is what I encourage other people to do as well is to do their homework. Well, that's fascinating to hear your background and story. I appreciate you sharing that with us and uh, just getting to know more of your journey and grateful uh, for the Lord's work in your life and to help us now with, uh, with through what you've created for us and even in this book. And it, so I I'm, I'm want to kind of focus on some of the things specific in the, in the book, Believing is Seeing. So I, when I first saw this, it, I realized, hold on, there's a phrase, seeing is believing. And it's so a, kind of a turn of phrase there. So I'm curious about just the difference in, in, um, in those two phrases for you, why you chose the title Believing is Seeing and what's underneath that in versus the phrase seeing is believing that we often use so much in our culture. Are those two things at odd for you? 
or are they, you know, how, how do you approach, you know, the title of your book, Believing is Seeing versus the phrase seeing is believing? Um, when I was a young man growing up, an, an atheist scientist, uh, a devout atheist scientist, uh, I lived by the motto, seeing is believing. Remember, I, I explained a moment ago that each of our worldviews is founded on certain axiomatic beliefs, belie beliefs that cannot be proven that you have to accept on faith. That's true for everyone. So we are, by the way, we are all therefore persons of faith. So when I hear people, well, I'm a person of faith, that doesn't tell me anything. Faith in what? <laughs> we are all persons of faith. All of our worldviews ultimately rest on beliefs you can't prove. So one of my axiomatic beliefs back then was seeing is believing. If I can't see it, I'm not going to believe in it. This is a typical atheist axiomatic belief. It's very hard. It comes across as very hard-nosed. Um, it's very demanding. Um, it appears to be that way anyway. Um, and uh, when I learned that the universe was mostly invisible, that, that threw me into a crisis because now science was demanding that I believe in something that I can't see, i.e. 95% of the observable universe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I knew right off the bat I was in trouble with that axiomatic belief that I would have to ditch it. The only question is, well, what am I going to replace that with? If I, if I can't live by the axiomatic belief that seeing is believing, whoa, what do, I, uh, what do I replace that with? And it took me many, many years to realize that the axiomatic belief that I should live by, the, the enlightened faith that I should live by is believing is seen. And by that, I mean, and it harkens back to what I was explaining to you when I was talking about worldview that what you believe affects how you see the world. It dictates how you see the world. So, so for example, um, unless you, let, let's suppose, God forbid, you have a terminal illness. Suppose the doctor has just said to you, uh, you, you, you have terminal cancer. Maybe you have a year to live. Um, unless you believe that modern medicine can help you you'll never see for yourself if it can or not. See? Suppose some young woman says to you, I love you. Well, unless you believe she is saying that sincerely, you're never going to put the effort into uh, finding out, seeing for yourself whether she does mm -hmm. or not. And so I tell my young audiences, the same goes for the question about God. Unless you're willing to believe at least in the possibility that God exists, I wouldn't ask you to simply believe that God exists. I wouldn't be that presumptuous. It's not that easy. Uh, it, it simply isn't. Um, but unless you're willing to believe in the possibility that God exists, you're never going to do the work it takes to see for yourself if he does or not. You're always going to live with that question mark in your mind. You might even die with that question mark in your head. And what a shame that would be. So believing is seeing means quite simply that what you believe is what you see. And uh, so that then says, well, what do you believe in? And that then gets to the size of your worldview. If I only believe that reality consists of space, time, matter, and energy, that is to say, I believe in a material universe, again, which is a very typical uh, atheist axiomatic belief. I seen is believing, and I only believe that, you know, there's space, time, matter, and energy in the universe. Okay, fine. 
I have news for you. That's a really small worldview. It's pretty cramped. It's like a, it's like a one room apartment. And I was that. I lived that worldview. That was, that was my worldview. My worldview in a nutshell was a worldview founded on seeing as believing, founded on believing that the universe was only made of these four things. And that guess who was right in the middle of it? Me. <laughs> Me and my dream to become a scientist. Okay. So um, it's very important for you to ask yourself, okay, what do I, how, 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 what, what is it that I believe? Because what you believe is going to determine what you see. Now that I have a much bigger worldview, now that I, uh, now that I allow for the possible existence, not just possible existence, I'm quite certain that, that there is a reality beyond physical reality. The evidence is all around us. I believe in the existence of a spiritual reality. <laughs> Suddenly my worldview has inflated um, significantly. And so that has also broadened my vision of the universe. Now I see much more than I did before because believing is seen. You believe in a tiny universe, you will bend over backwards to interpret every bit of evidence that comes across to you in terms of that little bitty worldview of yours. But once you allow yourself to expand your worldview, to allow for other uh, realities, then you start seeing the universe in its full magnificent glory. And that, my friend, there's no substitute for it. No. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's the world that God created. Yeah. So I'm curious um, about, you know, in our culture today, there's often um, the viewpoint that science and religion are enemies, that they can't. And obviously you've made a case and your life is one that where they are not. But I'm, I'm sure this is a, a question or a thought or a concept that you get asked a lot um, that you, whether it's I'm on a college campus with students or <clears throat> with scientific colleagues or even in the church, um, there's different points of view of that's that the assumption we often make in our world today that science and religion are enemies. We see this sense of um, just a lot of uh, stress and just negative dynamics on around um, just all that's going on in our culture, and it becomes a very very political issues at times. And so, I'm, you know, would love to hear your thoughts on how um, you help people reconcile that science and religion are. I'm assuming you would say are not enemies. How do you help? maybe students or um, people within the scientific world see that they don't have to be enemies? Well, first of all, of course, they're not enemies. Mm -hmm. um, let, let's just begin with the entire history of uh, recorded history of humankind. Um, uh, for that entire history, um, we have been curious about the world and have sought to understand it. And that was the kind of our fledgling scientific impulse. We, we're wired to be curious about the universe. Um, and I, I, I want to I pause there and explain it, but before I do, because I don't want to lose my train of thought, but brother, remind me to come back to that for a moment, okay? Um, the, the other impulse we see so clearly expressed throughout the entire uh, history of humankind 
is um, this feeling that there is a reality beyond just what we can see, taste, feel, touch, and so forth. That there, there, there is a reality that it, there's more to the universe than meets the eye. And so those two impulses have coexisted from the beginning of time. And you have to ask yourself, well, how, what's their relationship been like? Well, for the most part, it's been very amicable. I mean, if you go back, for example, to the nominal beginnings of what we would call modern science, um, go back to ancient Greece, Aristotle is considered to be kind of the grandfather of science because he was the first one that looked at the universe, looked at plants and animals and started categorizing them. He, tried to, he started trying to bring some order to what he saw. Before that, there was the sense that, no, it's just all very chaotic. And so we, we credit the ancient Greeks for, uh, for presuming there might be order in nature. And of course, that was the very beginning of the, scientific, the, the modern scientific impulse. And you can trace that kind of thinking linearly from Aristotle then through Newton and Galileo and Hooke and, and Descartes, and then on through Einstein and, and Heisenberg and all the way through the present, present time. Um, and so uh, these impulses, our religious impulse, let's call it, and our scientific impulses have been married beautifully. I mean, all the people I've just mentioned, Aristotle, Newton, um, they're all, they were all men and women of great faith. Aristotle believed in God. He called it the prime mover. Um, and again, I talk about it in the book. And so this notion, this notion that somehow science and religion are at odds is a, is a modern invention. It, it's, it's really actually a quite ignorant thing to believe. And, and in order to believe it, um, you, let me put it this way. If you believe that with all your heart, then you know very little about religion and you know very little about science. Mm -hmm. um, because if you, I wrote a book uh, a couple, three years ago called um, Amazing Truths, How Science and the Bible Agree. And what I did just to try to kind of address this kind of misguided point of view that somehow science and religion are enemies. They're not enemies. They're actually powerful allies. Um, I wrote this book and I picked 10 great truths. I mean, not little bitty truths, big truths. And I explained how science sees these truths and how the Bible sees these truths. And the reader can see for themselves what I discovered in life, which is, wow, they're not enemies at all. They actually lift each other up. They validate each other. And so um, I, I have never, uh, well, I, I was going to say I have never embraced that, but I did. I, w I went through that ignorant stage when I was an atheist. I believed that. I just believed. I, I, in fact, when I was challenged to read the Bible by that young woman, I told her, no, I have no interest in doing that, um, partly because I, I have the impression that people who read the Bible hate science, and science is my number one love. So why would I want to read a book uh, whose followers hate the very thing that I love the most? And, uh, but I got past that misconception, thank God. Otherwise I wouldn't be here talking to you. <laughs> I'd probably still be holed up in my lab somewhere, you know, uh, that scientific monk. And uh, so uh, here's the sad part for me, Jason, and especially given your, your audience of uh, church leaders uh, for whom I have a lot of respect. And right now 
there, we are facing a crisis. But you see, I always see crises as opportunities. See, I'm not sad about what's happening right now. I'm actually overjoyed because I think God is giving us an opportunity to go to the next level. Okay, and I don't know if we have time to explore that. But what I'm saying to the pastors who are listening and to you is this. Please don't be that pastor who um, encourages that misconception that science is the enemy of religion. And I'm sad to say that a lot of pastors do. And I don't know if they even realize it, um, but they do. They send off the wrong signal. They, they, they think, you know, ooh, when they think of science, they think of Darwinism and they think of, uh, you know, oh, they did that. They ought to get God and ought to replace. No, no, stop, stop. And, you know, you have the young earth and the old earth and the thin ancient and then this or, I mean, stop. First of all, uh, just with regard to that, please read my books. <laughs> uh, because in it, I, in them, I, I explained to you, for example, this whole argument about how old the earth is now. And, and, and a lot of Christians stake their faith at 6,000 years old. Well, I have news for you. Time is not an absolute truth. So there is actually a reference frame where the universe is 6,000 years old. And then there is also another reference frame and where, where it's, you know, 13.8 billion years old. There's no argument. When you, when you understand what we've discovered about the relativity of time, then there is no argument. It's a stupid argument. And you're just driving kids away by this stupid argument and by perpetuating it. You see, um, there is no argument. All these People who have these apparently different points of view, they all can be right, according to science. So relax, <laughs> stop, stop driving people away with a pointless argument. And God, don't stake your faith on it, you know? Um, it's just silly and it's destructive and it's, and it's helping us to lose an entire generation. So I just want to urge the pastors out there, look, I'm going to make it very clear to you. I believe in the infallibility of the Bible, period. You didn't hear me qualify except I didn't, there's no asterisks. There's no hidden footnote, no end note. I believe in the infallibility of the Bible. I believe it is the inspired word of God, period. I also believe that the scientific method is the most brilliant method we've ever discovered to study God's creation. Now, I know you hear from scientists who happen to be atheists, and maybe they filled your ear with the idea that somehow to be a scientist, you need to be an atheist. Wrong. They're, they're trying to dupe you into buying into that ignorant misconception. Don't be one of those people. It's not true. Um, you can't, science, yes. Science has made the decision and it was even before Darwin came along. So Darwin is the big boogeyman, you know, and uh, for, for a lot of Christians. And it need not be. It need not be. I believe in Genesis. I believe, I believe exactly what Genesis says. I, 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 don't, I haven't compromised my belief. And again, and if you read what I say, I'll explain, I explain to you why you don't need to compromise. Okay. But there was a time, uh, even before Darwin, when science kind of started becoming very secularized, by which I mean that it started saying, you know, you can't use God in explanations of things. We just, we don't want it that way anymore. Now, you can, you can throw 
but you can pitch a fit over that and you can argue and you say, well, you know, they shouldn't have done that. And, and quite frankly, I agree with you, but you know what? They make the rules of the game. We assign us. If you, if you invent a game, you get to invent the rules. Okay. So those are the rules of the game, like it or not. But here's what science is not saying, my friend. And this is where the atheists try to mislead you. By saying that, by disallowing God to be part of scientific explanations of things, science is not saying that God does not exist. Mm -hmm. Science is agnostic. Science is saying that whole question about God is beyond us. It's beyond our realm. We have now turned science into this kind of very circumscribed game, this circumscribed uh, study where we want to just find naturalistic explanations of things, but it doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. So again, don't get all upset about it. Just understand that about it. So it is entirely possible to believe as I do in the infallibility of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, but also give science its proper respect it's trying to find natural explanations for things. And guess why it's succeeding? Because the universe it's studying was created by a rational God. So, of course, you're going to find rational explanations for it, if you wish. And if you want, you can exclude God. But it does not mean that God doesn't exist. It's like going to a restaurant and having a five-course meal. And you said, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, that was a good meal. I love the way they put the pepper and the, and the, and the cumin and the salt and the, and, the, and the ingredients of the tomato sauce and all that. And you never mention the chef. You're not, by, by, by explaining the meal, by, by becoming joyous over the meal, you're not saying the chef doesn't exist. That's where we are in science. So I just, I'm just encouraging the pastors who are listening that it is possible to be solidly Bible-based church without compromise, without compromise, because I know a lot of pastors are trying to compromise themselves to accommodate what they think science is saying, but they have a, mis they have a misguided view of what science is saying. Pastors can have a Bible-based church and at the same time give science its proper credit. And guess what? When they do that, the science, when it's properly interpreted and pro is, is given proper credit, actually makes the Bible even more relevant. And that's how we're going to reach the young people. It's more relevant than ever. Yeah. Well, Dr. Gellin, we're privileged to have you on today just in this conversation. I'm grateful for your work and how you're your heart uh, for the Lord, for scripture, for science, and, and serving the church by um, this book that just came out this week, Believing a Seeing, and your other works that you've done. We've got about a minute left, and I, and I think it would uh, be important to hear from you is just what is your hope for anyone who reads this book? My hope is that they will, number one, take a very hard and honest look at their worldview, and if, as a result of that um, earnest inspection of their worldview, they find that their worldview is two sizes too small, like the Grinch, then I'm hoping that what they read in this book will, will help expand their worldview so that it will be big enough for the creator of the universe and also the study of his creation. Um, and I also hope that when they read this book, they'll discover 
that um, when you place yourself at the center of your worldview, then the best you can hope for is to dream big. I was this little Mexican kid dreaming big to become a scientist. And I thought that was as good as life can get. But then my worldview grew much larger and I replaced myself and my dream with God and his desire for my life. I discovered my destiny. And if I had not discovered my destiny, which is much bigger than your biggest possible dream, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. I really would still be that scientific monk because Harvard, my dream led me to Harvard and I thought I was on top of the world. But God said to me, son, you don't know. This is just the beginning. And he took me beyond Harvard. And here I am this morning. And I just want to say to you, dream big, yes. But more than anything else, seek your God-given destiny. Because it's greater than any dream you could possibly imagine. We're honored to have Dr. Michael Gillen in our hub today talking about his new book, Believing is Seeing, that just released yesterday. So I know your schedule's busy, uh, Dr. G, <laughs> and uh, grateful for your time um, just investing in our community to church leaders. And so whether you're one of the many watching this live right now or catching this on our podcast or on demand, um, I know you're going to want to pick up. Dr. Gillen's book that released uh, yesterday, Believing is Seeing, you can get it on Amazon, published by Nav Press, it's, um, and all the different uh, outlets. Uh, but I encourage you to grab one of these uh, for your own journey, for your equipping as a church leader, for investment in your family, and just in today where often as um, science seems at odds for us who are people of faith, I think Dr. Gillen's reminded us the importance of asking those honest questions. And so we're grateful, again, Dr. Gillen, for your investment in us and the conversation. Your story is fascinating, but the, your work is critical. And so thank you uh, for that. And then I also want to re remind our exponential community, we're in the season of our fall regional conferences. Next week is our D.C. regional, so there's still time to register for that if you're in the Washington, D.C. area. And then you can see there on the screen, um, but we also have uh, regional conferences happening in California, two, one in Bay Area, October 5 and 6, and then Southern California, October 7th and 8th. We'll be in Houston, Texas at the end of October, October 26th and 27th, and then in Chicago, uh, November 2nd and 3rd. So we, as we get back together again, as we're looking at together, the great collaboration about how we can work together as the church um, to advance uh, the kingdom through reproducing and multiplying churches. We're excited to gather with our exponential community. Thank you for joining us today. Again, check out Dr. Gillen's new work, Believing is Seeing. And we're, uh, so have a great day. Thank you for joining us.